Well, day in and day out, tens of thousands of people endure the stress and misery of commuting, whether it's the chaos on the M50, standing in crowded trains or the misery of waiting for buses. Getting to and from work is an expensive and time-consuming business. Is there anything that can be done to make life easier on people who, despite all the promises of technology, are still obliged to traipse into our cities to work? In studio this morning, Barry Kenny is the Corporate Communications Manager in Irish Rail. Sean O'Neill is Director of Corporate Communications at Transport Infrastructure Ireland. And Sean, I'm going to tell the people what that does. Sure. It's the quango whose job it is to provide high quality transport infrastructure and services, delivering a better quality of life and supporting economic growth. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I mean, I could. I think I can leave now. That's perfect. That's, we're done. I, I was, Thank you, ladies I was, That's a high level goal, you well, know. You so know what? That's I, we, every morning I wake up and I say, How, what can I do to make your life better? <laughs> well, that's good. And Thank that's you. why you're here. And Cormac Rabbit is a transport engineer and he used to work with Dublin City Council and has worked on lots of major infrastructure projects. So look, this morning we're looking at ideas that will help. We're not just going to sit around and complain about it. So if you're a commuter and you see something obvious that you think that could be done to help, please let us know and we'll test it out with the experts. And Sean, I will start with you. Sure. The M50. Now, really, I'm having this programme for my poor husband. Of course. Uh, so <laughs> I live in Enfield. Yeah. He works in Carrick Mines. OK. So, you know, it's the N4, it's the M50. Yes. The public transport options are even longer than the, you know, the car options. It's hell. Is there anything that can be done to relieve the misery and randomness of the tailbacks? Well, well, I think two things. One, there's obviously been a major investment in the M50 and the upgrade over the last few years. People have experienced a a transformation of um, the previous iterations of a major motorway around the city and now we're dealing with a modern system which means that you have interchanges that are free free flow you have four lane wide motorway you have connections to um, all the other major urban uh, motorways so as this gathering of proper metropolitan highway system has come into place people again uh, are able to use it functionality is is very good but capacity is a challenge so we look at um, just some statistics not to bore your listeners, but um, you have 400,000 unique journeys on the M50 corridor a day. That's nearly half a million. And what is a unique journey? It's two uh, interchanges or less. So people hopping on and hopping off. So that's behavioral. Um, And that's something we need to look at and see how we can modify that. Um, There's been a study. uh, It was produced as as part of the onboard planalis requirement for the upgrade of the M50. We had to do a study with the local authorities and and produce an understanding of how to manage the M50 into the future. The title of that study is the M50 Demand Management Study, apropos, and um, basically helping people understand what steps can be taken to manage the M50 into the future. But the M50 has to be part and parcel of an integrated transportation network. It's not the solution. Mm. Um, we need to look at public transport. We need to look at behavioral patterns of, of uh, employers even, maybe asking people to shift, uh, be more flexible with timelines because during peak times now, the level of service is diminishing significantly and we're having a greater, greater impact on the functionality of the system. So well, it is a huge issue. Well, let's talk about a few specifics. So one is tolls. So at the moment, there's just one toll as Correct. you're heading northbound across. Yeah. 
across yes. the old bridge. Yes. And um, there's been talk that you should have tolls on the rest of the M50, you know, southbound. Now, what would that achieve? Okay, well, basically, as part of the M50 demand management study, if you read that, they talk about different steps that you can take. And from a multi, multiple, multi, multi-tolling position, uh, multi-point tolling position, um, you're looking to change people's behavior. Multi-point tolling is not a revenue-generating exercise. It's a behavioral-changing exercise. Yeah, so it's not to collect money. It's to make people, people stop using the road. Well, it's make people stop using the road during certain times if they don't have to. And um, it's a challenge, obviously, politically and the policy. We don't do policy at TII. We just implement it. So uh, currently, it is not going to be happening. Uh, we've been told that. Why and that's not? Directed. I, policy positioned by government wants to see the other steps that can be taken before that happens. So, for example, they've spoken very publicly about this. Um, we have variable speed limits that we can implement on the M50. And they want to see that happen first. They wanted to see the Phoenix Tunnel open up, which it has. They want to see the Lewis Cross City to be completed, which it will be by the end of 2017. So they want to see these other um, steps that can be put in place to see if that will help mitigate the M50. And is that because putting in a toll would be unpopular? Well, obviously, it's a policy decision by politicians. And I think you conclude, as you see fit, um, that the difficulty with charging people additional cost for transport is challenging no matter who does it. But I think it's a reasonable approach when officials say, look, we understand that this study says this and we understand that this study uh, is based on facts and and positions of people's changing their behavior based on cost, but let's try these other steps first as well. And again, we're an implementation agency, so we say, okay, fine, we'll go do that. Um, Multi-point tolling is not being um, considered by us. We have not been told to do it, but we've been asked to implement uh, variable speed messaging as variable speed systems which helps to create a flow through the M50 um, by regulating speed and then notifying drivers of incidents well in, well in advance. So it's a signage system, a gantry system that we put up. It'll be in real time. It's called Intelligent Transport Systems. It's part of a whole network of in basically embodying uh, information and, and enabling the driver to make a decision and in real time. So that'll take a few years. That won't be in place until probably the end of uh, and actually, and one thing on incidents, you, you know, so a big thing that will happen is everything's fine and then there's a crash. Yes. And then so now, and then you're looking at six hours of disastrous tailbacks. Why can't crashes be moved quicker so those tailbacks don't build up? Well, there was an interesting demonstration. There's there's uh, two things. One, uh, it, people need to realize the complexity of and the level of incidents that happen. You know, we have about uh, 120 incidents uh, a month, you know, significant to not significant incidents. Um, and they, the non-significant are dealt with rather quickly. People don't even know they happen. We have crews on the M50 that are sitting there live on either side, um, both directions, and basically can respond instantly to an incident, move people along if there's a small fender bender or mm. something like that or as a tire blows or whatever. Now, let's go up a notch. There's a serious incident. There's potentially a significant uh, incident and maybe even a loss of life. The Guardi, emergency services, ourselves, everyone's involved in dealing with this and mitigating the impact. But the real point of, of focus here is that someone's life is at risk. Someone may be killed. Someone may mm. have been killed. So it's a crime scene. And just last week, um, the emergency services team, there's a coordinated emergency service group that encompasses all the stakeholders, local authority, guardy, emergency services, ourselves, you know, fire, ambulance, everyone, all got together to show the media in real time how they deal with these incidents. Oh, very so good. So it was very good. It was up in Marino. I was really impressed by this training facility. 
And one of the elements that has been um, brought on for uh, dealing with the time lag and the timeline is a new 3D rendering uh, technology that the emergency service can, can set up at a crash scene. And the gentleman who's in charge of this is really impressive. He's, he's been doing this for 30 years, and he's really engaged now with this technology. He knows that he's one of the pioneers of it. It will do a 3D scan of the entire crash scene, every little piece of glass. It's unbelievable, this technology. And that alone, he, so he was asked by the press, you know, to your question, you know, usually an incident can take six hours. What does this piece of technology do? He says it takes an incident that would take about five to six hours down to two, maybe less than two. Right. So that savings alone, in because this is crime scene investigation mm -hmm. stuff. This is sort of CSI Miami, you know, and except <laughs> they don't have the, the, the nice big Humvees. But basically, um, it does a scan of the scene because you have to submit this to a court. So that takes a lot of time. And then us responding to cleaning up different oils and all that, it takes a lot of time. So we do appreciate that if somebody is, you know, discommoded or very, very uh, trying to get to a doctor's appointment or a job interview or their job, and all of a sudden the M50 shuts down. We've put in alternative emergency routes as well. They're signed. People will see on the blue gantries, these sort of yellow with black triangles or squares, black squares. That's to identify during an emergency how to go from one junction onto the local network back to uh, beyond the incident. So that's another element of the emergency management that we're doing. And then finally, one thing my husband says is that, look, if it was just a slow crawl, well, at least you could relax, you could listen to the radio, but sure. that the quality of driving is absolutely brutal. So you've got everybody, oh, that lane's going faster, I'm going to get in there, you're trying to merge, trucks start speeding up so you can't merge because God forbid you might get ahead of them. Is there anything that can be done to improve driver behaviour on the road? And then that would, A, reduce the crashes, presumably, and B, reduce the stress for everybody. Well, I think besides genetically <laughs> modifying people from birth, I don't... <laughs> well, that don't, has... I like know, the sound of I that. I don't, I don't know if <laughs> there's any... Science. Yeah, Barry, could you, you get into that? Yeah, so, uh, but I think... Um, yeah, you're, you're talking about, a, you know, kind of social cohesion and people's behavior. It's an aggressive... Every city, like Boston or, or New York, any place I've worked and, and lived in, it's human beings. We're, we're terrible. You know, we have the patience of a gnat. You know, we, we don't, we want to go and do, and, you know, I'm the only one that needs to get somewhere. Yes. Forget about the 150,000 people around me. So I think uh, that's really the challenge. Uh, and I think when one of the issues that came up, and I read something on it, rubbernecking. When an incident oh, happens yes. on the other side of the motorway, in Japan, they've put up these giant um, screens and they all this sort of stuff. When an incident happens, there's literally a crew of people, men and women that are out there putting up screens so you can't look at the incident. But guess what happens? What? People slow down and look between, like just <laughs> between these giant panels, people are looking. Like, what can you, you know, what can you do? <laughs> what can you do? So I think we, make, we need to make it socially unacceptable. You're, you're, you're just terrible if you do it. And the guards told me, and I'll, and I'll finish on this, which yeah. was shocking at this demonstration in Marino, that they arrested and, and prosecuted 12 people. What they were doing at a, at a serious incident, across, people were taking their, uh, their phones out, yeah. their mobile phones, filming the incident as they drove by. I was nice. like, that's the most despicable, horrid, oh, terrible behavior I've ever heard of. Yeah. And the guards, in fairness to them, bagged 12 of those people, threw them in court, and that's it. Wow. See you later. So that's what we have to do. That's what people are doing. They're literally somebody's life being destroyed on a motorway and some jackass is filming it with their phone. Yeah. Like that's terrible and that's unacceptable. People. Um, 
Barry Kenny, so where does Irish Rail fit into this? What can you guys do to make life easier for people? Now, the the Phoenix Park Tunnel mm, opened. Did. What should be the impact of that? What are you hoping for? Well, that? it's giving a brand new public transport connection. Uh, I mean, one of the reasons that people use the M50 to the extent they do is uh, because direct public transport or convenient public transport connections may not be there or may not be as, as readily available as they would like. So for that southwestern corridor, for people that are travelling from the Newbridge uh, on inwards who currently uh, their their option by rail was Houston and then transfer to either Lewis or, or bus from there. Now they can come around through the tunnel and come through to the Connolly and then more particularly that South City business district, the Tara Street, Pierce, Grand Canal Docks, so you're covering government apartments, you're covering I suppose traditional business and then down to Grand Canal Dock and you're covering the, 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 the Silicon Docks as they would like us to brand oh, it, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, that's a new one on me. And right. I mean, instantly, it has to be said, when you introduce a new public transport service, when you particularly introduce a rail service, particularly when you take it that people buy annual tickets largely, so they're tied in to their existing pattern, it tends to be a slow build. From day one, these trains have been busy. From day one, 21st of November just gone. And uh, we are already seeing people standing on these trains and that may sound like a negative, but the fact of the matter is commuter transport and urban rail systems are designed so as you can carry people in large numbers, which includes using the standing capacity. So we started at peak. We introduced seven new services in the morning and seven in the evening. So we have a very frequent service now from uh, Newbridge and Hazel Hatch in with a choice of existing services to Hazel Hatch and coming around to uh, through the tunnel through to Grand Canal Dock as well. And what we're seeing is certainly some people that were existing customers switching because I was talking on the first morning myself to people who had been taking Dublin bikes from Houston, for example, oh, yeah. or had been switching to other modes. And now they're saying, well, you know something, this is much more convenient because the train starts from Newbridge or starts from Hazel Hatch. I get on, I get my seat, I relax and I'm around to Grand Canal Dock so I have a time saving I don't have that mode interchange and this will work for me but we will also be getting new customers and we've seen that as well because our car parks at the stations are filling up as well so that's Mm. happened Mm -hmm. Uh, we'll also be expanding uh, dart frequency we've we've expanded dart capacity this year Uh, we have done some resignaling work to allow for more trains to come through um, and we would be introducing more of those services next year beyond that you're into two I suppose major pieces of work. One, a shorter term one, is boosting the fleet and, <coughs> excuse me, we're talking with the NTA at the moment about funding for that, uh, both reinstating fleet which had been stood down from service during the downturn and then buying new trains as well. But the big ticket item what and really the biggest single uh, project in terms of getting addressing congestion is the DART expansion programme. It includes the DART underground tunnel but it also includes electrification, converting the main rail lines into Dublin to DART and some resignaling work. And basically what it would deliver is that every single vehicle that currently comes into Dublin city centre in a peak, the people in those could be accommodated by rail. That's the capacity. So tell me about the DART underground mm-hmm. then. Where would it go from and to? Well, it's a, a an underground tunnel that would run from uh, the, the design that was approved and we're just reviewing that at the moment as part of uh, preparation for the next phase uh, would be an underground tunnel from Inchicore serving understa- underground stations at Houston, Christchurch, St. Stephen's Green so linking then with the uh, Green Line Lewis and with Metro North, mm. uh, Pierce Station linking with the existing DART, Spencer Dock again linking with the Red Line 
St. Louis there and out of the north side dark line. And what it means is that from a situation now where you have one very congested rail line right to the heart of the city, the loop line bridge that goes from Connolly to, through Tower Street Pierce, you would have that resignal so it can take more trains. And then you have a brand new line going underneath. And they don't conflict. So all the conflict we have at Connolly Station, if you're coming in the Maynooth line, you know sometimes you're sitting outside waiting for the darts to pass. All that conflict goes because it's two dart lines now. It's Maynooth to Greystones as a dart line and then it's Drogheda through to Hazel Hatch via the tunnel and the interchange is at Pierce Station down an escalator. So it means you can run more trains on every single line and connect with every single mode. So everything connects. Lewis, Metro as, uh, as planned, Dart, Intercity, all connecting. Now, it sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, when are we going to see it? Um, right now, um, it is probably 2027 is oh, the earliest. Right. Uh, uh, because what we have is it, it isn't funded at present. Now, there is a midterm capital review next year. The government is planning. Uh, certainly, there is a lot of, uh, I would think, uh, learned expertise that would say we're not spending enough on infrastructure. And historically, yeah. we're not, you know, we don't. We spend and of course, less. it's the first thing that's cut in the book. Mm. because it's easier to cut capital stuff yeah. than it's longer term. I mean, particularly if you're talking about rail projects, they're longer term projects. So the return yeah. uh, is deferred. And if you are, you know, if you have to have taken political considerations, which myself and Sean don't, yeah. but if you do have to, obviously people say, well, what am I paying my tax for? You know, where's the return on this? And we see it historically. We've seen it in the development of the Lewis and even in Lewis Cross City. I think it's, le- I think it's muted uh, in Lewis Cross City because people have that experience of the Lewis yeah. knowing that, well, actually, when all this upheaval is done, we're actually going to have a, a, a very Someone good service. But, to, yeah, but, so, but yes, basically, sorry, sorry, what we want to get, we're doing this tunnel redesign work at the moment to try and get some lower costs in there. We want to have that done by the end of next year so that if the capital review says we can go ahead that we would be ready to build from 2020 because we do have to go through the railway order which is the planning permission process again. Um, and an architect made this remark to me I don't know how valid it is but maybe you can say is that that dart underground has been conceived of for years yeah. and years and years yeah. and one of its problems was it went through a poor area the liberties and places like that and there wasn't therefore the political pressure or seen as a political need to serve people in that area as there would say on the south side which has the Dart and has the Lewis and has lots of different kinds of transport. Well I suppose and if you look narrowly at the Dart Underground and the route that it serves yeah. I think you're many you're in many ways missing the point of it because yes it goes through the Christchurch area, also goes through Pearson and St. Stephen's Green, which are obviously very uh, affluent areas as well. But while it gives good inner city connections, its real win is in connecting everything else from outside and ensuring that there is that high capacity public transport that you need to encourage people to switch from road to rail and then that can allow people to say well you know something we have built this high capacity public transport for you so now we can put demand management measures in like tolls like the congestion charge you have in London that type of thing and I think that's been the kind of reluctance uh, by policymakers is to put those in place because people say well what have I got to switch no to? Now, there is capacity there and there is unused capacity there, albeit it's getting tighter. Um, but ultimately, if you're going to plan for a longer term future, 
this is the project. It is part of the NTA's Greater Dublin Area Plan, which is hugely important, which means it has the policy support. It is a question of funding. Now, Cormac Rabbit. Um, so look, they're beautiful projects like the Dart Underground. We'll get on to talk about the Metro North um, in a while. And then there's the wider rail network around the country. But we built all these amazing motorways and we did spend all that money on the M50. You were part yourself of upgrading the interchange all around um, the Red Cow. And Colin McCarthy, for example, would always say, we don't need to spend billions and billions on more rail projects. Just put buses on all these beautiful roads and places like the Port Tunnel that we've already built. They're a much quicker fix, much more flexible, much cheaper. What do you think of that as an idea? I think everything that's been said here today is wonderful and great. But, (laughs) you know, there's always a but. And it's all pure incrementalism. Does it make a difference to the ordinary commuter and the traffic here today? And that's where we are, is we're here today and tomorrow. Next year will take care of itself and we have to go to work today and tomorrow. Um, We can have all these great studies. Now, I'd love to see Irish Rail start underground in and we would make it very profitable because we would deliver a lot of people to it. But it's like, you know, the London Cross City Rail route, the new one that's going ahead, this wonderful scheme. But it's not um, London Underground and the same in the motorways. You know, you can toll the motorways, but actually tolling the motorways will make no difference to the traffic. They went through every incremental of tolling and up the tolling and not using your cars in Singapore and so on. In the end of the day, tolling a motorway is just pure tax. So that won't provide you with a solution. If you want to provide a solution, you have to do something transformational. And you need it now. Elon Musk says, why wait? And you, you see the news announcements every other day about his, his new factories, his new solar panels, his new cars, his new improvements to cars, his rockets. You know, he says, why wait? And we're in the same situation because if you look at growth for every 1% of GMP that growth, the transport demand goes up by yeah. 2%. So it's way ahead of the curve. And by the time you put one line out to the airport, It'll make no difference to the city. Our dark underground will make no difference to the city. It'll still be the same. Now, we're talking about our city here. And are you talking about mending the wallpaper and your dining room wall and, and measuring the cracks? Or are you talking about how I want it to be? So that's where you start from. So what from. do you want then? What are you saying would make a difference? We say that you have to get a critical mass of infrastructure in, a rail infrastructure. You need like the arteries in your body. You need something that feeds into it and all the other systems feed into it. So the more quality bus corridors you have, bus rapid transit routes and all of that, it's a potpourri. It's a whole mixture of transport, Lewis's and all that. That's what we need. So I say to put in is that our plan is to put in a comprehensive set of radial routes into Dublin, six radial lines. And those lines are very extensive. Um, But we can do this in a relatively short time. We could open in 2022-23. We have the team on board. Sorry, who's we? What is Uh, Metro Dublin. Oh, right. Okay. We're a development. We're not a lobbying organisation or anything like that. We're a development proposal. We are have actually met with Onboard Planola, which is part of the Strategic Infrastructure, which is part of the planning process under the Strategic Infrastructure Act. And we've got a team on board who, um, a team like the Irish Rail would have for developing their Dart Underground or TII, Transport Infrastructure Ireland, would have for developing a road system. But we would do everything in an open, transparent manner through competition. We would go through all the procurement processes that you go through. And what would your routes be? You said radial routes. What would they be? The radial routes essentially would be coming in. Um, we started Malahide, swing around by swords through the airport and we would come down then through Ballymun, 
into the city. We go through Dublin City University and Dublin Institute of Technology. So we're connecting the technology and then we go down under Houston Station, um, St. James's Hospital. That's the new children's hospital. We provide a full metro system and there. Sorry, and as part of that, so Metro North has been given the go ahead. That's a route from Dublin City out through up to Dublin Airport, past DCU and Drumcondra and that and out to Swords. Is that part of that route or are you talking about something quite different? Yeah, the Metro North route, we would have the same Metro North route. Our alignment is slightly different as it's towards the city, but we would have a full proper system, you know, a full high capacity lower energy um, that's one thing we can do with our system we, we'd probably be able to put driverless on that you get down the operating costs considerably and you up the standard and quality of services when you go down that path but our other routes are coming in if you come in from Holt straight into Holt Junction we go across the north city north side and then through Beaumont Hospital and then we go down through Whitehall and through say Crow Park and into the city centre. So loads of new rail. So Pat says for Barry Kenny, as soon as the schools go on holiday in June, Irish Rail drop a couple of carriages off my commuter train. I'm convinced they want to keep my commute mildly uncomfortable on a permanent basis. Barry, are you doing that deliberately? No, if we are reducing <laughs> trains, don't forget in the summertime we do have, we have increased demands elsewhere. Right. And like there is no doubt it is unrecognisable summer, July and August versus the rest of the year. But so I there think, is lower demand. I think you have some kind of um, ethic in you that actually commuters should be standing. That that's no. fine. And you've well, no sympathy. Well, sorry. I wouldn't say that I've no sympathy, but I would say it's fine because peak rail travel all over the world to move those type of numbers. I mean, an eight carriage dart mm. can move up to 1,300 people. How do you get into work? I get the one thirty bus. I'm actually not near the, the oh, dart line. Right, okay. Now, sometimes in the evening, I'll get the dart to Cholester and I walk 20 minutes down. Maybe you yeah. should be forced to, you know, live in yeah. Drogheda or something. I lived in Maynooth for seven years and, uh, as I say, it, it, well familiar with, with, with the commute. But it is, a ho- it is a supply and demand business. Right. And the fact of the matter is, in the summer, if you've got some latitude and need those trains elsewhere when the tourist business is at its peak, you're going to move those trains. Oh, what I would like is for one of the chief executives of one of the transport companies to be a pregnant woman and forced to use their own service and then they uh, might... We're, we're back to science solutions. <laughs> it's yeah, not, yeah, not possible say. right now in ours Deirdre anyway. Deirdre you know? says, and a lot of comments about this, send kids to school on a bus. The evidence of free flow in the city in the summer, mon- in the summer months is actually amazing the difference the school makes. Paul on the M7 says, why are vans not permitted to use express lanes on toll roads we pay more yet are made queue and someone else why is it that every council feels the need to charge for parking at every possible space in every small town and village in rural areas the buses are few and far between and most people need to drive to get to public transport so the cost of fuel in your vehicle the parking charge and the bus charge make it more expensive to use public transport than just continuing to drive in on your own vehicle not to mention the limited trips rural buses make charging in car parks as well Mm -hmm. are you making money from car parks at at, uh, train stations we make some it's not, it's not paying all the bills, but we do yeah. we do need that contribution. Uh, we've obviously seen our funding, public funding, reduced dramatically uh, since the downturn. Uh, but we, I suppose, bias it in favour of regular commuters. So you have a monthly parking fee of €30, Euro, or we have a current offer, uh, which expires very soon, of €220 Euro for a year. So okay. per day, it's less than a euro. 
M50 is only blocked by university students starting at the end of September. Guess students are driving. That's a whole new thing, isn't it? (laughs) Build university accommodation for 10,000 students and make it affordable for them versus driving and you'd be solving the M50 problem. The mental health of the workforce and a rental crisis in Dublin. Joined up thinking. I like that. There you go. I, I think, again, if you look at how people's commuting patterns happen. There needs to be some greater thinking. We need to take a step back and you need to look at the country as a whole and also people's behavioral patterns. So one thing first, the country as a whole, Dublin is a giant gorilla sitting on a seesaw on one side and it's all the way down and the capacity for Dublin to handle the the demand is not going to get, it's not going to be in front of the demand anytime in the near future with the population increase for Ireland. It's projected by 2050 or 2035 to be something in the region of 6.2 million. So we've got to look at the country as a whole and to counterbalance that sort of analogy, you need to look at the rest of the country. Now, there's a in a road infrastructure um, sort of element here. We have Dublin connected up to these urban hubs. You know, Dublin connected to Belfast, Galway, Limerick, and then down to Cork and down to Waterford. We need to interconnect all of those. That was the second phase of the plan. Um, we've got Gort to Tume right now, motorway going past Galway down and bringing you in motorway past uh, Ennis, past Shannon, all the way to Limerick. And then there's a disconnect from Limerick to Cork, okay? Now, that disconnect means there's no motorway from Limerick to Cork. And Cork is the second major city outside of Belfast on the entire island of Ireland. And and so it's the second major economic center in the Republic. And it's not connected to any of the West Coast major metropolitan centers by motorway. So that would have a transformative impact from a macroeconomic standpoint into the future because you need to counterbalance Dublin. You know, you need to counterbalance the capacity that Dublin has against the rest of the country. And with the sort of the elements of job growth, people wanting to stay within their community, um, economic value for employers, catchment area for employees, that motorway itself would be a huge benefit because you connect Ultimately, you connect Cork, Limerick, Limerick, past Shannon, up to Galway, just past Galway. That entire stretch, that that sort of Atlantic seacoast there, would have a huge impact economically for the country into the future. And we need to think about that into, uh, as we know, obviously there's a proposal for the M20. The government currently, Shane, uh, Minister Ross, has uh, but isn't put that money in actually, Cormac, I'll put this to you. Isn't that again car centric? That actually we did build amazing motorways, you know, and you can go Dublin to Galway in great time now. But then. That that reduces the demand for rail services, you know. So Barry's competition is the motorway. Um, it, was that either a mistake that we made um, or is it simply just a virtue of the country being relatively small and therefore not having the population size to support an extensive rail network? Um, definitely not a mistake. Um, the infrastructure is actually the backbone of the country yeah. now, the roads. And I don't like to think where we would be without that infrastructure. Um, and during the 80s, it was a terrible time in Ireland. Um, there was no money. Um, you get great things began to happen. Um, the road need studies was bypass of all the towns in Ireland. And um, that proceeded right up to 1998 or 2000, 1998. And then they decided to connect all the bypasses together, which was a, a wonderful step. Um, but, you know, Irish Rail and the intercity services, you know, you people have to be able to c- commute around the country and get to places, but you can't get to the rail stations here. You know, if you take it. And it's just quicker because the roads are better to drive. It's quicker and um, safer and less cost for everybody. And it's the industrial backbone of the country. 
But um, how you connect all these together in the different forms of transport is probably more important. Um, like the roads was a great investment. Um, rail, I would say that the, you know, a, a comprehensive railway system is actually probably cheaper investment than the rail, than the roads in the sense that, you know, you, you invest in a metro system in Dublin and it's actually going to generate a massive amount of exchequer cash flow. You know, it's, it's, it's all of this stuff is, you know, we can't afford it. We have to swap our thinking around to how can we afford it? And when you put it yourself into that mode, you, you find, you know, where is the actual cash flow um, to the exchequer? And very quickly, you know, you can say, use the word infrastructure, you know, how does it generate cash flow to the exchequer? And there's a lot of ways like, you know, to get capital gains tax from land, stamp duty, better utilisation of state assets. You know, for example, our rail line to the Dublin airport would utilise that asset to the state, which would be a, a, a cash flow every day to the exchequer. So when you take the balance of that in a city, um, you know, it's fundamental to, to a country to work, to have good infrastructure. And just one thing on the transport and that, like, yeah. I mean, if you look at our numbers in public transport, like what is it, 122 million on Dublin bus, you know, they carried 360 million about 30, 40 years ago, uh, you know, three times the amount virtually, you know. Mm. Um, we've gone way down there. And if you compare ourselves to other cities, you know, you know, who have more cars than we have, but they would maybe get 518 trips per annum. Uh, each person on average would do 518 trips on public transport in a conservation area. Yeah, we would do maybe 130. We're, right. And if we go ahead with the programs that are there, all the quality bus corridors and so on, we would end up with with something like 190 trips um, per annum, which is only kind of 25% of what it should be. On bad driving, John says, I'm a lorry driver and I think car drivers should do CPC courses like we do. Well, I'm sorry, John, now, but I'd still see lorry drivers going around on their phones and uh, whatever course you're doing, there might be a better one. Barry, just on the competition <coughs> between yeah. motorways and rail. Yeah. So I have a grand conspiracy theory, for example, okay. about Another the... One. Yes, I'm good on these. <laughs> Navin. Yeah. So that M3 motorway was built. It was a PPP and yeah. huge work was in before you built a motorway on planning the route, buying the land, all of that. Yeah. And I always thought it would have been so much easier. Fine, build your motorway, but right beside it, buy an extra 100 yards worth of line and stick a rail link in there beside it. Right. But of course, you can't do that because the people building the road are going to be making money from the road from the toll. So why would they build their own competition? So, um, but <laughs> if it was being built completely hmm. in the public interest, it could have been a Navin well, rail we, link. Well, we do have the M3 Parkway station, right. uh, which is just off the motorway. Now, people do have to pass through the toll, but that car park is free. Right. So there's 1,300 spaces there. And where exactly is that? It's just north of Dunboyne. So we have a, okay. we have a, it's a spur off the Maynooth line and at peak times you go directly into Dockland Station. So we do, we have that uh, facility there. I think a lot of the points we've just been discussing both on a national level and a Dublin level comes back to planning. And the issue we have had and one of the reasons that we talk about the congestion uh, is because historically Ireland did not have a good record when it came to planning. I mean, you're coming back to the fact that the Dublin area, this gorilla, as Sean describes it, and as I will forever picture it now, <laughs> and, uh, is this enormous low-density sprawl that is the dominant creature on the island versus the, the, the other cities. And, you know, in terms of planning, in terms of our national and our regional network, you should be building around 
infrastructure or you should be planning infrastructure in tandem with your planning whereas we were very much developer-led planning for a long time. Mm-hmm. So th- I suppose the one area that, that has probably excelled itself historically as well as in, in, in latter times is the Cork area because um, the Cork local authorities were very progressive in terms of the Cork area strategic plan. Um, the most successful new line that we built during the uh, the Celtic Tiger era was the Cork Middleton uh, line because they had planned for a very long time that this is the way that the Cork area is going to develop and will mean that we can support these rail lines and these new stations when we uh, deliver them and develop them. It's not a matter of either road or rail. I mean, if if we go completely car dependent, we are going to blow every environmental target. We're going to build congestion for cities that have finite space. You can build all the motorways, you can build all the lanes on the M50 you want, but you're still dealing with a finite space when you get to the economic areas. Just on on the planning. Yeah, um, I would kind of disagree with you there. Barry, is basically we've had wonderful plans. We have the Dublin Transportation Study in 1971-72 where they did all the motorway network. <laughs> but we also, in, in 72, we had the railways. Yeah. And so, they were sorry, it was the implementation of the plans. The implementation, yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. But if you look at, 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 the, at the plans then, yes. um, you know, in 1972, they, they, did, they wanted to upgrade existing rail lines. But in 1975, you had the Irish CIE, Irish Rail for CIE, um, the plan, they want rapid transit for the four new towns of, of Ballymun, Blanchardstown, Clondalkin and, and Tala. Yeah. Wow. Now, there's no rapid transit to those lines, but the, the line that was done was on the coast. You know, that, that's the one that was done, but the four new towns was the plan. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, I mean, you can say, you yeah, know, good, we, can't, we can't afford it. Yeah, but good planning, you know, bad implementation, to be fair. But, you know, we have a great baseline infrastructure in Ireland and like the, our road networks and that are, are, are shaping right up. It's not a case that we haven't achieved what we set out to do in most areas. We've actually miles and miles, we've exceeded them. Yeah, but there is a theory that says the bigger you build a road, you could add 10 lanes onto the M50 and it will fill up. Like uh, yeah, there's studies there's on that, Sean. Yes. Like, you know, once you build the capacity, it will be used. Yes, but I, but I think, again, it's you, you got to take a step back and look at the distribution. We're, we're obviously Dublin focused because the population centre is in Dublin and you have the density and of public transport. And that's a global but, trend. But that's a global trend. Yeah. But at the same time, we have, we are a small uh, country. We've done uh, a lot in a very short period of time. We've achieved a lot in regards to infrastructure investment for transport in in a very short uh, time period when you think about it. But at the same time, you need to look at where else do we need to develop, like Cork, for example, like Galway, Galway mm-hmm. Outer Bypass. We need to look at how, and you don't have to have cars. You can have buses. You can have... Now, you know, so, uh, please, my this buses. This is my segue for you. Did you like that? <laughs> did you like that move that I did? I under- did. You Thank queued you. me up. Thank you. So my grand plan for the M50s are buses. Why are there no buses on the M50. So why can't you park up at Liffey Valley and there are fleet of little shuttle buses yeah. that will go in, par- uh, drop up people off at the Red Cow, yeah. go down to City West, Dundrum and Carrick Mines. Exactly. And someone will give you a little <laughs> cappuccino and a little novel to read and to show you, you on your seat. Road, you, know? <laughs> you know, give you foot warmers. No, no, no. It's the fact, it's the fact that you, I, I think two things. One, obviously I can't speak for Dublin Bus or, or, or yeah. but um, Bus Aaron, but I think it's 
you look at where people are and where they live and where they want to walk to the stop and get on, you know, and I appreciate your point. They should be able to go to maybe like a park and ride facility yeah. and that sort of thing and then hop on a bus. But that's not for me to decide. But I think, well, again, what do you think of it? I think, you know, I think as a segue back to me, yeah. I think it's a brilliant <laughs> idea. But I think any 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 integrated approach to public transport is a good idea. And transport infrastructure, we're not, we're not car focused, we're transport infrastructure focused. And that means buses can use the roads, you know, anyone can use the roads that, yeah. that and if you can create a capacity and we obviously have the Lewis Cross City as part of our remit under NTA. Anything that can integrate public transport with the infrastructure we oversee, good idea. Now, somebody says the biggest problem on the M50 is drivers not using it properly. Most don't even know there is an inside lane. It makes my blood boil. If you put three guard bikes on it for one month and fine all the drivers for not using it properly, it would relieve 80% of problems. By the way, there's a little app called Budify that I've been using where you can do little meditations in certain situations. <laughs> and there's one for when you're driving. Wow. So, Okay. If you can't get off so. that M50, I really <laughs> recommend that. Okay. Yeah, Jerry <laughs> says, instead of upgrading roads around Dublin or building a motorway between Cork and Limerick, which is needed, at which is needed. A totally pointless motorway has been made between Gert and Tume. Is that a totally pointless motorway? Absolutely Sean? not. No, no, no. Right, no. okay. Now, Michael says, this might be my husband, so I have to read it out. Gantry delay warnings, no use because you can't get off the M50. No public transport option to connect people to business parks and it's two hours regularly for a 30-minute normal journey. Sean, say something nice to my husband. Well, we do have park and ride facilities. <laughs> um, there are, you know, the Lewis is an option for people. We Again, I actually take, uh, you know, a couple of days a week, I do take the train. So, Barry, thank you very much. Thank you, yeah. Sean. So, I think anyone that can change their pattern of behavior, even for two to three days a week or two days a week, will have a dramatic impact. So, maybe that'll help your husband. Okay. Barry Kenny, Metro North. So, tell me about that. What stage is all that at and what's it going to do? I'm going to defer to my so colleague from the TIA. <laughs> oh, really? Sean, is that yours? Yes, we're working. Okay. Yes, we're, the, the Transport Infrastructure Ireland is working with the uh, National Transport Authority in the implementation of Metro North. Now, Colin McCarthy he's against Metro North he said it's going to cost billions it'll take years and you should just put buses going in and out from Dublin city centre to the airport and the airport is actually the biggest bus station in the country well at the end of the day uh, government policy is to build Metro North so that's what's going to happen and we are basically working with um, all the local authorities and we're looking at finalising the alignment again funding is not in place yet but it's definitely uh, the the planning procedures and all those steps that are ongoing currently uh, are taking place and there's people working on it diligently so it is happening. So when will it? Uh, when will I be getting a train or a metro? I would like to give you a date, but I can't because funding isn't in place yet. Right. Okay. Um, I'll give you the date. We'll be opening our metro, hopefully. <laughs> or oh, your metro in 2022, 23. <laughs> Great, excellent. And we have the team on board and the finance lined up, ready to do it. Fabulous. And um, we I also have the legislation in place. I, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody to hear the, the phrase Colin McCarthy disagrees with. Yes. There's never been a pair of rails uh, that uh, I think okay. he's agreed with. Colin McCarthy. McCarthy also recommended yes. that you guys sell off Rosslare Europort. You have no business owning it and you've got piles of land banks. And if you sold all that stuff, then maybe you'd have a few quid to buy a few new trains. Piles of land banks. Well, I, I can tell you the most land banks that we have are very narrow uh, land banks that contain railway lines. Yes. Um, we actually, something you mentioned earlier, uh, CIE Property, our parent company, have just um, are involved in a project with NAMA. Uh, who are adjacent properties and oh, we're d- and and we're selling that land and the student accommodation being developed down in the point area so oh, we are right. making our contributions in, the, in in that regard uh, I'm being a bit facetious in fairness I, I, I think every uh, argument should be assessed but there is a school of economists that held sway in this country for an awful long time 
that basically has allowed a mentality of developed that says spending on public transport and investment in public transport is wasteful. It is not. European countries look at it the same way as spending on health, education, policing. It is about the economy and society and enabling both to work. And that's why we spend on transport. And we're joined now by Laurie Winkless, author of Science in the City, The Mechanics Behind the Metropolis. Laurie, can you tell us what technology can do to alleviate some of our traffic problems? I think one of the things, if we're looking on the shorter term, we can certainly make our traffic lights smarter. Because actually, traffic lights are the things that really control how our traffic moves through cities. So there's a lot of trials happening in cities across the world that include uh, new sensors that are embedded into traffic lights that can recognize, for example, the type of vehicle that's pulled up to the traffic light. So in some cities, they might give priority to buses that have 50 people on them rather than a car with a single passenger. In London, one of the really cool things that I came across recently was infrared sensors that actually count the number of cyclists that are waiting at a junction to cross. And the clever thing about that is when there are a large number of cyclists, they adjust the green light time on the traffic light to give them an official head start. So it's safer for the cyclists and you get fewer kind of uh, problems as we often see in cities between motorists and cyclists. Looking further ahead, of course, if we start moving towards driverless vehicles, then there are questions about whether we need traffic lights at all. And then it comes back to what does that mean for cyclists and pedestrians? So the future of that interaction between cars, pedestrians and cyclists isn't isn't really clear yet. Yeah, I often think about driverless cars and it seems to me that when everyone is using a driverless car, everything will be better. But the transition period, that's where you're mixing humans and computers together on the road. That's when it's going to be the, the tricky time, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's really what's going to happen for the next 10 to 15 years in my view. Um, yeah, until we've got 100% driverless vehicles on the road, if we get to that point, no one's going to take away your steering wheel. <laughs> and we're going to also have to always think about those interactions. It's going to get more important that we prioritise the humans in our roads and in our cities as much as we do the motorists. It might be as well, you know, we've been talking a lot about public transport and how it's very expensive. Would we have driverless buses and driverless trains so that the cost of public transport could come down? Absolutely. And actually, to be honest, trains and buses are much further along the development route than cars. Um, Easily, the real reason is because trains, for example, are in a fairly controlled environment. You don't really have people walking across train lines. So having a driverless train system, it's a lot easier to control those variables you know you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff the same type of things you have to worry about for a car so in Copenhagen their metro system is entirely run without drivers I believe there's four or five people who run the city's metro network from a central control system so none of those trains have drivers in them so that's already already happening and with buses if you can have dedicated bus lines you know a dedicated bus road where you know you're not going to have to interact with say a human driven car or cyclists, then again, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, I think making them driverless for mass transport is is an expensive option, but actually it's a much cheaper option in the longer term. And mass transport in general 
is a much more sustainable option for cities. Now, the other thing is information. You know, I know now if I'm going to get a train, I'll check the Irish Rail app and it will do the live timetables and tell me if the train is going to be late or not. Can that kind of real-time information be applied in other ways across transport, private and public, so, you know, you can plan your journeys a bit better? Definitely. And that's a huge trend, actually. Um, that's something that we can do on a much shorter time. So we, we don't need driverless cars to already make those improvements. So we're starting to see trials of centres that are run along um, main junctions in cities. So say it's, say you're driving down O'Connell Street, for example, you could have centres at different points along that street. And that, they will count the number of cars. If your car has the, uh, a matching centre on board, it can send information to say, oh, I was stuck in traffic for the last you know, 50 metres, send an alert out to tell others that there's traffic for this section of the road. Oh, yeah. And that is then, yeah, it's really clever because it becomes more integrated and, and that can in theory at least be integrated with the mass transport options in that city. So just like any travel app, if you know that part of your journey is going to involve a bus journey or, or you have to get in the car and drive across to another bit of the city, that will all be fed into the same app. Um, so that you can say, actually, normally I drive this route or normally I get a bus here. But looking at the traffic now, it's much quicker if I get a cycle, if I get a bike or if I actually just stay on the train for an extra stop and walk. So we are definitely seeing that. And the power of the smartphone is now we have these computers in our hands at incredibly low cost, diminishing costs, but they're getting smarter and smarter all the time. So that's definitely a huge, huge trend, especially in European cities. And is that a way where traffic control centres could get information out to commuters? So say sometimes if I'm driving in on the N4, which is my road into town, you'll see a mm. sign up saying, oh, crash at Junction 7, M50, delays expected. Can that be improved? Is there more information that could be got out to commuters that way? Definitely, because it's already been measured. You know, the traffic, these traffic control centres often just use cameras, so they're looking for areas of no movement on the road because no movement means traffic jam generally. Um, so that's already been analysed. But again, if once we get to a point at which most of our cars have centres on board that can receive that information, instead of having to see it on an enormous board or for their traffic managers to have to project it onto an enormous board at different points along the route, you will get a voice activation in your phone to say, just warning you, Sarah, this yeah. is busier than normal. So perhaps you should take the next exit and try and um, mm. move that way. So instead of having to have a kind of, uh, you have to drive past the information, the information will come directly to you and your car will be able to communicate with other cars further down the traffic to give them more detailed information, such as how fast you're going or, or you know, if there are any if there are any accidents ahead, they can all of that data and all of that information can all be tied together, hopefully anonymized so that you don't feel like you're being spied mm. upon. But there's certainly ways that you can manage that information carefully. And that is, an, that is a huge challenge 
much wider than just traffic uh, that we're facing. I suppose one thing that keeps striking me is, I don't know about you, but I definitely remember being in school and being assured that technology would mean that A, we'd all be working fewer hours in the future, we were all going to have loads of leisure time, and B, we wouldn't have to go to an office anyway to do any work because we'd have broadband and the internet, and why are we all queuing going into shopping centres? Because we can shop online. Why are we still going into cities, getting involved in these traffic jams at all? Yeah, that's a really good point because we don't, uh, we kind of talk about traffic like it's a separate thing to us. But of course, we're part of it. Yeah. <laughs> so we look at the traffic around us, we're adding to the jam. Um, there's lots of kind of uh, theories around this in terms of psychology. And it all seems to come back to this, this need for human interaction that we seem to have. So even though it's very easy for you to have a Skype conversation, say, with someone, see them face to face, have a, a meeting as comfortable as a meeting in the same room there's something about us that seems to drive us to to want to actually be sitting in the same room as people as often as we can um but one thing that we are starting to see and and this has been enabled by better broadband is um hours our, our working hours are changing so we're seeing cities now where instead of having a big peak leading up to 9 a.m and then another peak after 5 p.m uh, those peaks are blurring over a longer period of time. So some people are are working kind of a six a.m. to a three p.m. shift, even in a even in a, an area which would traditionally be a nine to five job. So we're starting to see the blurring of of those peak times, and that will that will improve traffic at those times. But of course, it leads to busier roads. And then, look, just finally, what are the global trends on urbanisation? You know, the, oh, this process started during the Industrial Revolution. People left mm. the country, they went into the cities. And it feels like cities still have that great pull. And so cities like London and New York and Dublin are still sucking all the economic activity and population activity out of the hinterlands, you know, and towards the centre. Is that a global trend? Is it accelerating or, or is the rate of acceleration decelerating, as Gard Fitzgerald might once have said? <laughs> <laughs> um, the truth is that cities have, have never been bigger than they are now. And that's, that's not just a perception. The, the UN in 2014 uh, announced that for the first time in human history, more than 50% of the world's population lived in urban areas. So now more than half of us, the majority of humans on the planet, are urbanites. Wow. We live and rely on the city. And that trend has shows no sign of decreasing for sure. There's lots of debate on, on how, how quickly that, um, that percentage will change. You know, it's always, uh, predicting the future always means you're going to be wrong about it or yes, <laughs> something along yeah. those lines. <laughs> but yeah, it doesn't show any sign of slowing down for sure. So there still very much is this flow into the city. And it becomes a bit of a, a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways because you might want to move into a city because you have better job opportunities, but that will mean that companies will also move into a city because yeah. they have more people uh, to access. And it, it does actually become uh, this kind of this, this rhythm, this momentum just keeps carrying. Um, it doesn't show any sign of, of stopping. I don't know whether that's fortunate or unfortunately, but... Sure, the way the way that we design and we live in our cities has to change because we're fitting more people into into these into these small areas. We're becoming more connected. We're hyper connected now with things like the internet and very very dependent on each other. So the way that we've built our cities historically 
was we were never meant to go this far, as it were. <laughs> so we're really going to have to think about how we design our cities better to make them more livable in the future. Do you find that a bit awesome? Not in the American sense, but, you know, <laughs> in the slightly overwhelming, where is this all going sense? Yeah, it can be. It can feel like that sometimes. But one thing that I've I've found in my work is that there's a lot more collaboration going on behind the scenes. So you are seeing cities that are doing good things, trying to teach other cities how to do that in their in their area. So we're starting to see people with great ideas, not just for their own cities, but it's starting to be developed elsewhere. And and, and that gives me great hope in in the sense of uh, as a human, but also it's it's fascinating in terms of my science background, I love to look at these technologies and the humans who've developed them, and they're never talked about, um, who are actually building better cities, building healthier cities. So yeah, it is certainly awesome in the traditional sense of the word, but I don't think it's uh, something that we can't, that we we should uh, stop trying to achieve these better cities for all of us. Okay, well, look, we leave it there. Thanks to Laurie Winkless, author of Science in the City, The Mechanics Behind the Metropolis. And if you enjoyed that, there are lots more podcasts for you. And there's been a great reaction to our previous show on our Camby and Vertex and how countries like Ireland should pay for expensive new drugs. And speaking of traffic, we didn't mention cyclists much on this week's episode, but you will find a special show on cycling further down our podcast feed. If you're listening on iTunes, we'd appreciate if you could subscribe to the podcast. And also, it would be great if you could give us a rating if you have indeed enjoyed what you've heard. So many thanks to my guests, Aidan McKelvey Research, Stephen Jordan Produced, Marion Kennedy was on sound. And thank you for listening.